And welcome to the Life Support Live podcast, the weekly podcast that explores how Star Trek can help us to boldly go in our own lives to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. As a famous starship captain once said, and as another famous starship captain also once said, the one with the new series on the way, wherever our mission takes us, We'll try to have a little fun along the way. Always, always. That's the goal. Hi, everyone. I'm psychologist Dr. Ali Matu. And I'm Dr. Trek, Larry Nimacek. One of us is a real doctor. And we'll leave it to you to decide who that is. <laughs> hey, every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, we record this show live on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook with our audience joining in and rebroadcast here as a podcast. If you'd like to join us live, check out the links in the show notes. And now, let's engage with our regularly scheduled program, Already in Progress. On this week's episode, we're talking about negotiating conflict. Not necessarily the intergalactic kind, Larry, but the personal kind. The let's... interpersonal kind. Otherwise, every secondary episode of every series of Star Trek would be negotiate some kind of <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, folks, let us know in the comments below, what's your favorite Star Trek star story about negotiating conflict um, between a few different people? Let us know, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'd love to get your feedback on that. So, Larry, um, I'm getting some feedback about my sound. My sound seems to be low. So, I'm, while I'm trying to adjust oh. my sound... Um, we, good to me. Yeah, I'm going to turn to you. And so, we, this week's episode is inspired by this week's episode of Star Trek Discovery. Uh, season 3, Episode 2, Far From Home. So, just to kind of kick things off, um, um, it, you know, without giving too much away, there's a scene that very much reminded me of a Western. Um, which is where the the theme of this show... Uh, it wasn't a scene, uh, it was half the show, but that's fine. It was that, yeah, that's all right. Yeah, 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 that's true, that's true. Um, what's your take on this first episode of, uh, or the second episode of Star Trek Discovery Season 3? Well, I was a leg up because I saw this one at the digital premiere also, but for all the folks who were watching the first show and saying, it's just the Michael Burnham show! Uh, I was like, you know, just be patient, guys. Uh, they're in the credits still, so hang on. So you got all the rest of the faces. In fact, I think they got just about every face you'd ever seen in on the show in. Um, it was great to see everybody having a part to do a lot of those kinds of things. And um, uh, no, it was it was satisfying. There was one part where I was a little. Eh, but then I realized I was just being wuss. And uh, no, it was I thought it was, it was full of um, there was some sound and fury moments, but there was also a lot of quiet reflection, too. And it seemed like there was a good character piece, at least for everybody. Yeah. Um, and mixing parts of the crew in ways we hadn't seen before. And uh, anyway, it just felt like a good, you know, these people, everybody but Michael, uh, EBM, uh, finally got their chance to shine for after this long wait. And I thought it, I thought it worked well. Yeah. Uh, folks, let me know if that helped with my audio levels at all. Um, brought the mic in a little bit closer. Uh, Larry, I, I agree. Um, I think this episode is further establishing this new, new vision of the future that we're seeing. And, um, I'm very curious to learn more. Um, great to see Saru in action as captain and in a very, uh, commanding way. Um, one of the things I really liked about 
this episode is through Saru um, and through Tilly seeing that vision of the 23rd century Federation ideals playing out in this 39th century. I think it's 39. Is it 39? Is that uh, it's 30, 38. So yeah, I suppose so. So the, this 39th century future, mm-hmm. seeing those ideals play out and, uh, and how that's gonna, how that's gonna develop over the course of the season. I'm, I'm excited to, to learn more about it. And, um, there, there very much was a moment, um, you could even say maybe a couple of moments of negotiating interpersonal conflict, not just there in that Western, um, Western stuff that was playing out in the, the, the bar saloon, uh, fight that sort of broke out. But we saw that on Discovery as well. There was a lot of uh, negotiating conflict between different people. And so uh, I thought that this could be a really fun theme for us to, to tackle, um, especially because so many of us have been stuck at home for longer periods of time. We have less breaks from the people that we're close to, the people that we share our space with. And all that means is there's more opportunity for conflict. There's more opportunity to kind of struggle with, with some of these things. So, Larry, I'm, I'm curious, when it comes to negotiating conflict, what in Star Trek sticks out to you? Well, I guess, I don't know, that we were laughing on this one because we, we first... <laughs> We came up with this, which made sense in light of this episode. But when you turn your gaze to all of Star Trek, I was kidding, but I was not kidding. So, yeah, immediately we we did say, OK, we're, we're not talking about ambassadors and treaties and all the formal negotiating, that kind of thing. So we'll just bring it down to the personal level. So now we're down to uh, three fourths of all episodes of all of all shows, of all series. I know I my you know my mind immediately goes back to next gen and original series just because I've seen those the most and especially the original series and um, again even trying to even pulling it down to the personal 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 to me it just it uh, you know I I, I I sent you a bunch of images we've got um, on one hand I think it's something like uh, Alana Troyes you know the Dolman of Alas but even that and that's fun because it's very personal. It's a Taming of the Shrew story. But even that is a mission. That's an ambassadorial thing I thought I realized later on. The one that – it's ambassadorial, but it takes a turn nobody expected. Gets back to – I mean, I know it's my secret favorite that – I used to call it the show that – yeah, there's the Alon. There's the Alon and Kirk. Uh, nobody's stabbing or throwing anything at the moment. They're talking about negotiating relationships. But the one that is a relationship within a wider mission that nobody saw coming – so I get to as a personal relationship is one in my secret favorite, most underrated original series show ever. We have talked about it before is I'm getting a little bit of, I think you've got something very touchy on your mic or something. You I know, know, I just, I just learned that um, it helps if the mic is turned on, Larry. Um, it's, it's something that really oh. helps uh, <laughs> make things worse. I think people I'm are sorry, probably getting, getting I, a lot better that audio. In, I learned that in st- streaming mistakes 101 back in the fourth grade. I don't know about where you were, but um. <laughs> Scott is saying, "Ali, whatever you did or clicked in reduced a ton of background noise." Yeah, yeah, that's because we were going off my camera's mic, built-in mic, which is a piece of crap, 
and now you're actually getting the real mic. I'm sorry, folks. I need to drink a lot more right as you know. Um, that should be part of it. Is hopefully that's not a part of the drinking game. So the audio level may be to. better, but what about the content level? I don't. Uh. <laughs> anyway, to finish my point, all I'm saying is one of my favorite moments of interpersonal conflict because it's so unexpected is McCoy and Elian from Friday's Child. Mm. Uh, in a scene which I think has gotten somebody has made it controversial lately, the the slapping scene. It's like I can't believe McCoy is slapping a woman. That's abuse, and I'm like, it's it's um, it's his doctor, it's his doctor bag of tricks with a you know with a, a reluctant patient, and it's also borders on you know what they call in Looney Tunes land cartoon violence. So I don't think of it as 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 uh, abusive it's it's comedic in the moment so anyway and he gets the job done and she's a warrior princess for guys you might as well be in klingon to get her you know cooperation to birth her own baby so anyway it's like boimler i think i've mentioned this before it's like boimler attacking her klingon ambassador friend uh the old general the moment she sees her in lord x so that's comedic too <laughs> literally cartoon lines that's where my, my mind just snaps to first as a go-to. But there are so many other examples across. There's Yeah, there's so and many the, examples. And the chat. Hey, everybody. I didn't mention it, but of course the chat's here. All the veterans know to jump in. People are already got their hellos out of the way, and they're throwing in lots of good examples for us to look at. I'll try to keep up better, as I always strive to do this week. But that's my first out of the box. There's lots more that are coming in, Ali. You, you know, my see. first, my first out of the box, I'm, I'm cheating here a little bit, Larry, because my first out of the box actually came oh. from our Facebook, uh, community, uh, when we posted yesterday that this was gonna be- It's a crutch! It's a crutch! <laughs> we got, we got a lot of really amazing comments, and one that sticks out to me is from Star Trek 3, uh, Star Trek 2 slash Star Trek 3, and that's David Marcus and, um, and James T. Kirk. So, um, when we mm. first meet Marcus, we think, we meet Carol Marcus and David Marcus. And, um, in Star Trek 2, you sort of realize that, um, he is, uh, Kirk's son. And David Marcus really doesn't like Kirk for a number of reasons. One is he does represent Starfleet. So this sort of, uh, the more, whether you want to think of it as military or peacekeeping, whatever you want to think of Starfleet, but Starfleet is this more um, militarized uh, branch of the Federation, and David Marcus and Carol Marcus really represent the scientific arm. And so there's that conflict, but as as the movie unravels, you also see that there's more conflict here too, that Kirk hasn't been around, he hasn't really been present. Um Kirk and uh, Carol Marcus have this conflicted relationship, and that's sort of playing out with David Marcus too. But as it as it um, continues into Star Trek Three, they do develop some type of understanding of each other. Um, David gets a better understanding of who Kirk is, and Kirk gets a better understanding of who Marcus is. Um, I really liked that, and I never really thought of that, about that in this lens until. Um, until someone mentioned it in our Facebook community. And just to make sure, you know, spoiler alert, uh, Carol Marcus, I, I, they, she was pregnant and never told Kirk. He never knew he was a father, yeah. and she yeah. never told David. Well, she, right. you know, he obviously knew he had a father somewhere, and somehow it never came up of who the father was. But um, 
and he took her name. So just to make you know, just to be clear about that point, he wasn't. I mean, Kirk may have been many things, but he was no delinquent father. No, uh, he had no idea. He had no yeah. idea. Um, and as Cairo says, the short on-screen life of David Marcus. Um, I wish we got more, but. If David Marcus never died, we wouldn't have that thread continue into Star Trek VI, which is mm-hmm. my next example that I wanted to bring up. Um, I feel very much similarly to Star Trek VI as I do Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I think almost every topic that we've mentioned in Life Support Live, <laughs> there's an example in Star Trek VI related to it. Uh, but in Star Trek, have we got VI, the phasers in the galley yet? Have we got the phasers in the galley? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Every galley needs to have a phaser set to vaporize. Have the, yeah. Have we got the mashed potatoes in the? Ga- okay, fine. <laughs> mashed potatoes. Right. <laughs> um, well, there's there's a lot of conflict here. Um, I, I think it begins really early with Kirk and Spock, where Spock has volunteered the crew. For this mission, this, um, this mission of negotiation to the Klingon Empire after, um, after the explosion has happened on, um, on the, uh, the moon. What's the moon off of Kronos, Larry? Praxis. Uh, Praxis. Praxis! How could I forget? It's I don't a know. word to say. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Spock. I guess you're just and- out of Praxis, uh, Ollie. <laughs> Larry, that's a good one. It was, I like no, that. it was really obvious, but I would have shot myself if I hadn't said it. So they, I, that's a good one. I'm glad you. I'm glad you picked that one up. Um, Kirk is really angry at Spock, and when Spock says, "Jim, they're dying," and Kirk responds with, "Let them die," um, what what's so great in that moment is you've got a conflict between <laughs> Spock and Kirk. But that conflict is about so much more. It's about Kirk's feelings towards the Klingons. It's about what happened to David, how their relationship was really cut short right when it was really beginning. And it's about all of the years of, um, of feelings that, that Kirk has towards the Klingons. And why I think it's such a beautiful example, we'll get to this in the counselor's log a little bit later, but, um, <clears throat> sometimes. Well, they made so him miss much his more. chair. They once made him miss his chair. They once made him miss his, oh yeah, 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 that's, yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but like, kill on bastards, kill my son. Um, <laughs> say it three times slowly. Okay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, the, so, so often when we're angry with someone else, it might be about a lot more than what it seems to be. And that scene, let them die, is about so much more than what it appears to be. So I, I love that example. And it, uh, kind of rings, uh, prescient today even, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. I I, I mean, that's the thing about Star Trek six. It's, it's unfortunately the, the movie that continues to be relevant over and over and over again. Except for the mashed potatoes and the phaser and the bridge. (laughs) I love mashed potatoes. I'd love to have the mashed potatoes in space. I think that'd be, that'd be awesome. We get to that point and I'm like, Oh, this must be the hobby kitchen. But moving forward, let's let's jump into um, let's sorry, jump into guys, TNG. You know, when I, 
when I get distracted, if you're new, when I'm distracted, it's when I'm madly trying to catch up with the chat. But anyway, and I'm following <laughs> time already. But anyway. Uh, we've got we've got a lot of great uh, comments coming in from all over the timeline. Uh, before we get to some of the later series, Larry, you had a phenomenal example of this from the Next Generation. Um, I'm oh. gonna tease up that example for you because I think it's it's fantastic. Yeah, it's my it's one of my favorite scenes. Period, and it's I mean you know I hear tell there's other great scenes in the Next Generation, uh, <laughs> but I always love this one because it struck me doing uh watching it one time and I, you know what i'm not a big um directorial person or a writing structure person i mean i can be but that's not what hits me right off but watching this episode and the first or second like back in the day and the first or second rewatch i love this scene but even apart from the technical aspects it fits right into what we're talking about today um and i'll and i'll share something on a lot of these cases through all the series I was trying to think of, you know, like guest star situations, not so much regular crew, although a lot of our, because a lot of the regular crew, uh, Spock and McCoy, uh, uh, Quark and Odo, a lot of them, it's like, that's part, that's baked in the cake of the DNA of them constantly negotiating yeah. conflict, you know, whatever. So that's why I always love this scene, and it was just enhanced by the way, it was kind of shocking for the time, now it would be like a yawner. But the moving camera, <laughs> the arc and the moving camera added so much to the scene in The Wounded, yeah. where uh, where uh, O'Brien gets sent in. Uh, Captain Maxwell here has, has barricaded himself in his ready room on his ship, and uh, O'Brien he lets O'Brien in as a former crewmate because they've been being nostalgic all the time. Well, now Maxwell's gone rogue. He's locked himself in his ready room. Um, and, and O'Brien beams over and he lets in and they just start reminiscing again like you saw them in the beginning. Yeah. And, and basically it's like a, it's like a, it's like what I say a hostage negotiation, but it's like a self hostage negotiation. It's like trying to get the person to come out and, um, without any other repercussions. And so it's almost like uh, O'Brien's a hostage negotiator, but he goes in and he disarms Maxwell. And gets him off the ledge, that kind of a, a negotiation, a relationship negotiation. But they do it with nostalgia, and yes. they they resing the the minstrel boy, the minstrel boy to the war has gone in the ranks of men. You will find him, and it was always so cool, especially on Next Generation, to go. I go, oh, Hearts of Oak, or oh, these old like these old. They pull these old songs out and use them. Oh, it's historic, but. But he totally, yes, I know, I know, go to it, guys. He totally disarms Maxwell and resolves the conflict of the moment um, with that move. And there's a lovely, it's like it was radical at the time. There's a, the, the whole scene is with a camera that just kind of comes around them. It like rotates around them, facing them from you know, one end of the room to the other. And that's the length of the scene. And he helps he helps Maxwell come to the realization I don't know. Maybe that's not strictly what we mean by interpersonal uh, conflict, but it's I, well, I negotiating conflict. But to me, it was a wonderful negotiation of the character dialogue and also negotiating the director and negotiating the scene. Um, you, um, this was the first example you brought up when we were discussing doing this as a theme for this week. Why. Yes. And I, I think it's a I think it's the perfect example Um for for so many reasons, and and just to put that image back up there, um, 
I think what's so, there's so many reasons why this image strikes me. Number one, um, you mentioned the direction here. Um, I want to highlight the lighting. Just look at the lighting in this image. It's a lot of ambient set lighting. There isn't a lot of direct lighting on their faces. Uh, that's a lot of that ambient lighting is something that was um, uh, more pioneered in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but it was very unusual for Star Trek The Next Generation. The yeah. other thing here that is quite interesting is we're talking about a climactic moment on the next generation that does not include the primary cast. Mm-hmm. That that's um, that's really amazing for the next generation. Use even Deep Space Nine again. We saw much more secondary characters who aren't the primarily build cast in the show's introduction. Was, yeah. I was going to say we're in paper own territory here, but yeah. Yeah, we, we, we very much are. Um, where the big moment of the show is happening with two characters who aren't leads. Um, I, I love this episode also for the reason why, um, we, we wanted this to be an episode or we wanted our episode of Life Support Live to be about the interpersonal conflict, um, between friends, between family, your crew and adversaries. Here we have a friendship, a crew conflict um, set mm-hmm. against um, a galactic conflict as well. And um, this episode really beautifully highlights how much personal stuff can kind of pull you back from That's making what's... really catastrophic decisions. That's but it I'm... also shows you how uh, personal conflict can lead you to making big decisions that are going to impact um, big organizations. So a uh, beautiful well, example, Larry. Well, it also highlights my favorite way of negotiating a lot of things, especially with strangers. Hmm. I'm probably better with strangers than I am with people I know well. But it's like if, if the conflict is coming at, you know, if you're doing this, whether you're at this stage or you're at this stage, to break that up, sometimes you've got to, you got to be like the future enterprise and all good things and come in at a whole 90 degree angle, which mm. throws everybody. And, and that, you know, and, and being off guard, being, uh, you know, instead of everybody going into, you know, to guns, phasers blazing here to rip him out of his, you know, trying to come up with some secret beam out technology or, you know, geek it out. It's very <laughs> innocuous. You know, it's his old friend O'Brien who, yeah, who isn't Picard, who isn't some federate, you know, yeah, he comes yeah. in. The only guy in the world right now that he trusts, that Maxwell trusts. So it's like going Larry, at the situation from the side, and then once he's in the door, he doesn't get in there. Now, come on, Captain, you've got to do the right thing. He comes at it from, hey, remember Stompy and uh, that song he used to sing, and the whole thing. You know, it's it's at a totally unexpected angle, and that's what allows there's, vulnerabilities there, to come. There's actually a lot of research to support exactly what you're talking about, and uh, we're going to get into that in the counselor's log. So um, that that is a wonderful oh, assist. Thank you, I'll, my friend. Sure thing. Uh, um, we, um, Cairo, uh, while on the topic of O'Brien, says, um, O'Brien coming to Worf with a bottle of blood wine. I think that worked twice to negotiate personal conflicts. And Worf drinking with that Klingon friend of the family in the way of the warrior. Um, mm-hmm. So often what we see in Star Trek are these uh, really difficult situations being diffused by the personal connection that two characters have. 
And uh, that's a great example of it, Cairo, and um, really works um, works well with this uh, topic that we're talking about. Speaking of O'Brien and DS9, let's let's go forward. Um, Libby and I had a little exchange on our Facebook group about this where she started to share a lot of examples from Deep Space Nine that works, and I gave our favorite response, which save is... Save it for Saturday. No, that's not what you Well, said. save it for Saturday, and then also that's the problem with Deep Space Nine, is every week's theme yeah. of Life Support Live, we could spend a whole... We, every character in every permutation is probably an example of that. Uh, Larry, it's hard to just pick one example from well, Deep Space Nine, but um, what what sticks out to you when it comes to uh, this show? Well, again, literally, this popped into my mind first. Although, yes, it's a show completely. It's all about every level. All 19 <laughs> facets of the show are always about negotiating because it's all it's that's the nature of the show. It's everybody being thrown into this mixing bowl, right? But immediately the thing that popped into my mind out of all of those, and I knew it would make Libby smile, not that this has turned into the Libby show, but we can make it the Libby show for five minutes. Uh, <laughs> it's the Bar Association. Yes. And yes. it's actual, you know, it's like actual, not personal, yes, but it's actual structural negotiation. But it's not empire to empire. It's it's a labor strike. And I that's what I always uh, love about that. Yay. When it comes to negotiations, yes. you have to talk Ferengi. You you have to talk yeah. about the Ferengi. They yeah. um this is what they do. They're the art so of the good. Yeah, oh. they um <laughs> they're very <laughs> Come on. Okay. <laughs> the Ferengi are very good at understanding motivations. Um who wants what, who has it? How can I get it from here to there and make um, make a little bit of gold press gold press latinum on the side, right? It's a long road. Um, yeah, I'm um, Larry. I feel like I'm very much off my game today. We 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 struggled with sleep last night uh, of getting my daughter to bed, and then as a result, me, and then she woke up pretty grumpy. So I feel like I'm a little off my game, but never happens to me at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the show must go on. Um, I, I, I love all, I love that episode. Um, that episode is so much about, um, relationships between family, relationships between coworkers. Um, it's also about some intractable, intractable conflict. Uh, these mm-hmm. big ideas that don't really change with any ease, like the Ferengi's approach to Forming a labor union and going on strike. They have some very big, powerful forces to keep that from happening. And this well, episode is very much um, it, about all that. It conflict. also shifts, right? It's not just Quark and Rom and Lita and the workers. Then they actually decide to get on the same page. But and then it becomes them versus Brunt and the FCA and the structural bureaucracy. So, you know, trying to negotiate that. And the best negotiation there turns out to be, you know, like a... <laughs> Just a fraud and get him to leave. Just say what he wants to hear and get him to go away. <laughs> Which is also a negotiation that happens. You know, it's not very. It's it's another one of DS9's answers to Starfleet's by the book. You know, such, you know mentality. And well, that's you know the creative ways around the book without violating the book or you know, yes. what happens. So, but they're Ferengi, so it doesn't matter. Do you think the, the brothers? Rom- Larry, do you think Rom and Quark would have been able to navigate that conflict had they not been related? It was going to be well. I it, 
in the well, I, I, well, that's a good one. I think um, it would have been, it would have started off the same. There would have been conflict because they're Ferengi, because yeah, yeah Ferengi. This is 24th century and replicators and blah 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 and Picard speech, but but because it was Ferengi, <laughs> blah 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 Picard speech. <laughs> the first duty is to the truth. The first duty is to the prophet. Okay. Um, and I don't mean the Bajoran prophet. How much uh, Latinum does it take until it's wrong, Larry? <laughs> These losses must be drawn here and no farther. Um, well, you haven't had much sleep. I can tell. No, no I know. I, that's a good question. No, I know. I think the brothers, the brothers made it, made it pointedly more more pointed at the beginning, but I think ultimately the fact they were brothers helped it, you know, and with Lita yeah. in his ear too, but Lita was future family. So Lita you know. was future family. And, and in fact, this might've been the beginning of, um, of Lita really taking notice of wrong. Yes, um, I, yeah, I think ultimately it, it became a business decision on Quark's end, right? Um, that's ultimately how Rom got, um, Quark to agree to to the union. It, it sort of it made financial sense. Um, right. Well, and this and, is setting up. You know, eventually, then things get personal again with Moogie, and the both of them are negotiating with Moogie. her. Moogie, very not bad, not bad. Um, Max would be proud. Um, and then the, all of them negotiating with Zach, and you know, on down the line. So uh, as far as the the Klingon, uh, the the Ferengi art goes. But anyway, oh, Larry, I think I think we're gonna have to have a new rule here. Um, Zahir says, uh, "I love every character played by Jeffrey Combs. They're all such frenemies." That's the other problem. Is um, you, you, all, pretty much every episode of Life Support Live could probably focus on every character Jeffrey Combs has played um, because they all apply. They're all examples of all of this stuff. My favorite example here would be. Um, the Wei Yun who wants to um, defect to uh, to the Federation. Um, that might be an example mm-hmm. of negotiating conflict here, where there's personal set against the stage of uh, of intergalactic. Um, speaking of um, of Ferengi, I think we have to mention one of our other favorite Ferengi here, which is um, uh, which uh, which is a friendship, um, uh, Jake and Nock. You were so very there's a lot of negotiating conflict there. We can take pretty much any many points of their friendship. I was going to say uh, any part along the arc. Yes, yeah. <laughs> right. My my favorite example does come from um, Paper Moon, where um, Jake is trying to help Nog um, reintegrate back to Deep Space Nine, <laughs> and um, and so much uh, misunderstanding, um, and really just them missing. Two boats or two short mm-hmm. starships just kind of missing each other in the night. Although passing it's always that time in space. Yeah. yeah, they're passing in the nebula. They're passing in the Mutara Nebula um, at night, which is all the time in space. There is. Anyways. <laughs> the Mutara Nebula. I, the I always Mutara. want somebody to say, but, or is there? I, I know the way he says that was such, no, there isn't. I just want somebody to slap him or something. Anyway, go ahead. Proceed. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, um, they're um, they're a great example of uh, again. This is what I think Deep Space Nine does better than any other series because you see the conflicts over years, 
and Jake and Nog, you see how much they both change. They go in vastly different directions, Larry. You have one who well, they even, goes into they start even do this. Yes, yes, absolutely. When absolutely. they're kids, you say, "Who's going to be the one that doesn't pick after? Who's the who's the dirty roommate? And who's the one that's by the book?" Well, you think you're going to think it's you know it's Nog and Jake, and then at the end, yes. it's like, "No way, no way." Rom is like. Super Starfleet cadet, and Jake yes. is the one that's like the you know the mess. So it's just yeah, no, he's a mess. He's writing. He's getting writing inspiration from this creepy alien lady. He's <laughs> yeah, he's 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 breaking the rules. He's he, he's doing all all that sort of stuff. He stays behind when everyone else evacuates. Hey, you're um, and not creepy alien alien lady is somebody else's muse and okay. and title. So watch it. True. It's all in perspective. But like she is sucking life force out of out of those. Okay, people. well there is that, yes. But that's also where he wrote his two great pieces, if you want to believe the future timeline. But anyway, <laughs> from the visitor, really? Uh, are you referring to the visitor? The two the two books that he winds up writing in later life are the two titles that are. I didn't know that. I Did didn't I connect give those you a dots? free K three? That's not even that... a K. That's like watch the show. Damn it! That's. <laughs> That's a watch the ship. That is that that should be a bumper sticker that we sell. Um, watch the show, damn it, oh. Doctor Trek. Um, yep. So uh, I had a point I was going to make here. Right, right, right. What's the point? What's the point, What's the point Ollie? Uh, the point is every friendship goes through changes. People change. They go into different directions, and especially friendships from childhood. Uh, it's very hard to maintain a, a friendship from childhood because people change so much in so many directions. Your values, your directions, your career goals, where you live. What's so great about um, Jake and Nog is they change together and they help each other change. And mm -hmm. that does produce a lot of conflict, like what we find when they're living together. Larry, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I had friends that were um, friends in high school, and they went to the same college, and they roomed together, and they hated each other because, like, they never had to deal with that type of conflict before. It is hard to grow up and change, mm -hmm. and it's even harder to change together and to go in different directions. Jake and Nog do that, and they're not afraid of that conflict. They, Their relationship is so important that they find ways to help each other overcome that conflict. And I think it's... Everyone talks about uh, Julian and O'Brien um, as the great friendship in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Um, I think Jake well, and Nog are... Uh, what's that? <laughs> I said some people, but right. Yes. Yeah, Jake I mean, uh, it's, it's really not fair to pick what's the best because it really depends on how you look at it, but... Um, Jake and Nog, probably when it comes to conflict and friendship, I, I think they, they're they a phenomenal example. Mm -hmm. Speaking of conflict, another relationship that was full of it is um, in Star Trek <laughs> Voyager. Well, I think you're full of it. I think they were full of it. No, well, no. Let's, let's just show everyone what we mean by negotiating conflict then, shall we, Larry? Uh, I, uh, what... One relationship that really uh, we've talked about a, a lot here and there mm -hmm. is that of uh, of Belana Torres and Tom Paris. So here's where I violate my rule about thinking in terms of like guest stars, because that was a rut. But I thought even with all the and I, I know we have lots of Voyager lovers out there, but and, and, 
you know, years go by and I should follow my own advice, but my, I still feel like for all the great characters and the great stories that, that Voyager, for reasons not even its own making, not, never got to fully make its own potential, even in the finale. But one of the things I thought they did pioneer and say did it much, because before Tom and Bellana, well, we saw dating and then we saw marriage. We, we saw about a year of marriage and then all the dating up till then and two hot-headed, you know, very strong individuals going at it. We kind of get the only, the only case we had before this was uh, was Miles and Keiko. And that was, you know, Keiko was such a recurring star that it's like you get him, you always got the husband side of things on DS9. You know, oh, she's gone yes, off the base door. Yeah. And you're like, oh, she has, has she? Well, yeah, and she's just gone for a long time. Right, right, yeah. right. right, right. Hmm. Wife gone for nine months at a time? Okay, <laughs> playboy. Okay, whatever. <laughs> but she was around just to keep him in line. But but one thing that that did pioneer on Voyager was seeing that kind of a deep relationship, you know, of intimate relationship over a long period of time. And, of course, the definition of relationship I'm sorry if I'm if I'm stealing your your job here. Is no, like please. it's like relationships are are negotiations one after the other, and if you think you've got them all yeah. down pat, there'll be something new to handle. And their arc is a little bit like Jake and Nog, only it's a dating and an intimate. In that we saw it over this huge long arc, and even the year they're married. Well, when I when you said oh uh, when you <laughs> when you said Roxanne and Robbie no when you said uh, um, <laughs> What's her name? Bellana and, and Tom. And yeah. When you said Bellana and Tom, <clears throat> the first thing I thought about, not all the, you know, we think about the dating, ooh, ah, ooh, back and forth arguing. The first thing I thought about was their very mature negotiation as married couple when they were talking about what their unborn baby would do, what, you know, all the options yeah. they could. And it starts reflecting, you know, she's PTSDing here back to being a, a mixed, a bi, a bi species kid with her Klingon mother and her human father and the in the conflict that made in her parents you know marriage and all of that and the cultural strife and then she's regurgitating all that and worried about her own kid and the two of them are talking anyway that's what that that scene there was from yes it's kind of the climax there and, and the doctor's trying to advise them and give them science and give them facts and they're leaning on everybody else you know to what to do but I, that's the first thing I thought. When you mentioned Bellana and Tom, the first moment my mind went to was lineage and, and, and tough decision, even for people that love each other. Yeah, Negotiate. absolutely. Negotiate. Absolutely. Um, that kind uh, of thing. It's, it's one of the great, um, romances of, of Star Trek, I would say. Uh, because it does, you see those different phases. You see the courting, the dating phase. You see them coming together. You see them struggle with a major life event, like having a child. And, um, should that child, um, should they, um, should they step in and, um, genetically change the appearance of that child? Um, you're seeing them deal with, and then some of um, Tom's, um, I don't know if we can call it depression, but um, the struggle he has with his mood when he's spending all that time in the holodeck with uh, working on the car in the holodeck. Um, with Christine. With, um, I mean, I mean, Alice, yeah. Of, of laughing because it's, um, 
you know, his his difficulty with his mood is playing out in a, a stereotypical way as it does for as it was portrayed for a lot of men in the 1960s, which I guess if you're obsessed with the 20th century, I guess I guess that's how that's how it would happen. You relapse. But, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, Barclay has shown us that sometimes people who really struggle with their emotions, they might spend too much time in the holodeck, right? And so that's that's what's happening to Tom. So you see their relationship go through some highs with their wedding and and some lows as well um, with uh, the struggle with having um, all the emotions that come up with having a kid and then Tom's mood and, and all of this sort of stuff. I think it's it's beautiful how much their love and support for each other brings them back in these moments when they are so struggling themselves. And, and, and that's when and as, as two people with short fuses, you know, yes. especially hers, but for people who can be prickly to others and yeah. be a, an enigma to other people, how they, they, and they were to each other at the beginning with their, you know, back and forth, but that cord between. And sometimes what we, you know, what we're worst with, with other people I don't know. The finding the right person sometimes means that's the time when your your standard gear doesn't work, <laughs> which is to your better <laughs> right. Right, like, and and um, maybe there's something you know. I didn't think about this until I was just listening to you right now. Maybe <laughs> the fact that they both are these outsiders in a way. Uh, Tom, when he first joins uh, Voyagers, is a bit ostracized in much the same way that Michael Burnham is very um, years later. Yeah. He's kicked out of Starfleet. He's kicked out of the Maquis. He's like, okay, nobody wants me, you know. No, so. he was in a penal colony in right, right, right. Was it uh, New Zealand or Australia? New Zealand. It was New Zealand. New Zealand. Yeah, yeah and you was somewhere down under. Um. <laughs> London foreigners. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's not a phaser. This is a phaser. Uh, boy, I hope someone gets that reference, Larry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he he joins the crew in a, in a um I'll throw in a another tag on the bobby for you. Okay. Oh, we are really out there today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> really? I think the Australians um that Australians tag on the bobby is what did it for you today. Okay. Oh, that sounds more Bostonian than Australian. So maybe we I'm just you got me. You got me imagining Crocodile Dundee hanging out at like a, a Klingon party. That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, I like. So I, yeah, that would be fun. I'm okay. like crying tears. I'm, I mean, that's all you cry, right? It's tears. I don't, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm crying elephants. No. Oh my gosh. Um, Okay. I had um, I I had a point here. Yeah. Okay. So Paris is a bit of an outsider, rejected, and um, and Bolana very much feels like an outsider, being um, human and Klingon, and then Mm -hmm. also as a part of the Maquis, um, wanting to approach things in a different way. She has a harder time assimilating. 
I was going to say a harder time assimilating to the Starfleet way, but then Seven comes along. She has a much harder time assimilating to the Starfleet way. Uh, but we see that when she's up for being a chief engineer early on. So both of these characters have a, a bit of a outsider's perspective. They've had to find a way to make it work as outsiders. Maybe that informed a lot of their their values, their views. Um, and maybe that that's something that has brought them together is they understand what that means to navigate being on this crew when you're um, not uh, when you might not feel like you're completely a part of the crew or you might feel very different from everyone else. Right. Hey, would you do me a favor? Would you yeah. put up the sign for the briefing room? Because we've actually been in it for 10, 15, OK, 45 <laughs> minutes. Oh my just, gosh! Just so that our I, new folks know that we actually I have always a forget. Um, yeah, folks, we are in the briefing room. We this always is slide when we, into the briefing room early because this is when we do the deep dive <laughs> into the franchise and the canon and all those things. How I mean, you always this. put up the sign for your part of the show, but from my I do. and the K three and the K three. I know. Um, I, well, the K three is the oddball, but I mean for this big. No, anyway, I just want to let people know that. Um, yeah, we are. On, I'm, I'm keeping one eye on the clock, but. Yeah, this is where we especially geek out, but then we'll get around to that, to your counselor's log and the, uh, and, and all that going on. But look, we, we are kind of being quasi chronological and there's so many, I mean, I didn't mean to just like abandon the next generation. Uh, there's a couple, uh, um, people have been putting in all kinds of good ones. Tim Hans mentioned Journey to Babel from the original series, which is one yeah. of my favorite episodes. Uh, yeah, my other too. favorite episode is Doomsday Machine, and there's failed negotiation in there. Yeah. You've got one of the participants in the negotiation who is not rational and goes off and kills himself to martyr himself, and it actually does a little bit of good when people, you know, you know, um, you know, maybe it wasn't sacrificed for nothing. But uh, you know, um, you mentioned Star Trek Six. Uh, we've mentioned this before for another topic, but. In Star Trek Three, you've got Kirk and Admiral Morrow. We mentioned it under rule breaking, yes. but it's it was Kirk is like you know Kirk often try doesn't break a rule until he tried to negotiate a muck time. He tries to negotiate with Starfleet without saying Spock's gonna die if we don't go there. He's trying to cover a little bit, but I think uh, I think Kirk should have been negotiating for that lovely jacket. I want that um, <laughs> I want that Admiral jacket. It looks. It looks cozy. It looks smooth. Um, it looks very 1980s. I want that jacket. K Mini K3, put the picture back up. Yeah, you got it. It's coming in three, okay. two, on view screen. Okay. Uh, see that? That see the admiral, the uh, officer in the back in the maroon. Yeah, it was kind of pulling his jacket down. Yes, yes, yes. The one that looks like Rudy Giuliani. Uh, no, the oh. uh, that gray blob on the paneling behind him. Uh, yeah. That's the Epsilon 9 filming model. Huh. Hung on the wall as a decoration. Because... Folks. Because Star Trek and budget has always been, you know, in inverse proportion. <laughs> uh, that's your second bonus K3. Um, Larry, uh, today's official K3 better deliver because these first two have been, have been wonderful. Um, I have although the first one was not a K3. The I'm first one was a watch a damn watch the damn show. Um, it was not a K three. <laughs> it's the first item there's, in the Life Support Live store that's coming soon. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> there's um uh, someone in um uh <laughs> Jesse in our, our comments on our Facebook group said uh, Neelix with just about everyone 
is an example of negotiating yeah. conflict. And I think that's that's um, that's a it's a great note. Um, much like the Ferengi, Neelix has a way of understanding motivations. Now, part of it might be his knowledge of the space, but we also see that with the crew. Um, Neelix can be, you know, a, a little annoying at times, um, in much the same way that the Doctor is. Um, but to his credit, um, unlike the Doctor, Neelix has a, has a very good way of understanding what do people care about and how can I help them meet their goals um, and get, meet my goals in, uh, in the same way, in, in, much, this, in much the same way as, as, our, um, as our Ferengi friends do on Deep Space Nine. So Neelix is a really great example of that, despite that Laola root soup, which, Larry, I'm just, I am not a fan of Laola root. I have tried it many times. It's, it's really? just too spicy for me. Yeah. I don't know what's, I don't know what's the problem, your opinion, or the fact that you keep, keep trying the Leola route. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, Uh, lots of examples, uh, in Next Gen. I was just thinking of, of a few more, um, um, unification, interpersonal play, Picard. And I mean, you've got, we were, uh, sorry, diplomatic background. You've got subtext of some of these things, but they become very personal. Sarek is the same way. One that's I almost pulled a slide for it's it's again against a big galactic backdrop, but it's very personal. It's Data and the first officer of the ship that he's taking over during the Romulan um, redemption. Redemption, redemption yeah. part two. Yes. Yep. Yeah. That's a fantastic example of and interpersonal data conflict. Things. Yes. Yeah, I, I love that example too. Um, it's it's a great example of how conflict can play out in the workplace. And many of that have experienced that where we might have conflict with our boss and um, Data shuts that down so well um, in that episode. But that, that's a really great example. And it was not about um, it, it was a very personal uh, bit of attack. Um, it was because of not because of Data's record. It was not because of his um ideas or suggestions it was personal because this officer did not feel comfortable serving under an android especially in a battle time situation so i love that example larry um there's a few others to kind of fast track us through the timeline um i really want to talk about um enterprise and the andorian incident um enterprise i think the um the triumvirate of enterprise when enterprise works really well is um andorians vulcans human that conflict. Um, Enterprise really shines when they focus on that. Um, I wish they focused on that a little bit more. Um, but w- starting with the Andorian incident, going all the way to um, uh, the, the second to last two episodes, Larry, um, is it Homefront or... Um, That's DS9. Um, what you mean? That, you mean Terra Prime and... Terra... Yes, Terra Prime Demon, and... Demons uh, and Terra Prime, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Starting with the Andorian incident, going all the way there, I think the, the relationship between the Andorians, humans, and Vulcans, that conflict, and the role that humans play, this is going to tie into my counselor's log, but I think the humans were able to help circumvent that conflict in a way that only the humans could. I do not think that Andorians and Vulcans could have overcome their differences and help found the Federation without the humans. Three points to turn a plane. 
or, or something. I don't know. Yes, they do. That's three points also give you a vector, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know what? Three points do not give you the Tellarites. And unfortunately, they got left out of the writing dynamic. But okay, fine. <laughs> Texture, not trivia. That's true. Yeah, That's true. Okay. Um, okay. I get the impression that we're seeing more Tellarites in uh, Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, biker Tellarites. Okay. Biker <laughs> Larry, you are just producing such great potential oh. t-shirts and stickers. Uh, oh. Biker Tellarites. Biker Tellarites has been in my wheelhouse since the second... It's like, finally, Tellarites! And okay, they all look like they just, you know, came from a rumble. Okay, fine. That's not... <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, and to, to round out the timeline here... Um, Sometimes when you, you mentioned the doomsday, uh, machine and, uh, when negotiation really fails. And sometimes this happens in relationships as well. And, uh, one of the relationships I really like, I know, uh, I know a lot of people have strong opinions about the Kelvin timeline and about this relationship. But, um, I just want to put a shout out for Ahura and Spock. Um, especially because what we see as their storyline concludes, really, or as their relationship really concludes in Star Trek Beyond, is their relationship comes to an end. And in that show, or in that show, in that film, it's coming to an amicable end. Um, they find well, a way to overcome that um, the, the relationship problems that, that are really highlighted in Star Trek Into Darkness. And um, they still... They still support each other. They still care about each other. They still work together. But it looks like the relationship might have come to an end. And well, sometimes looks, that's a part of negotiating conflict. Well, I think I think part of this they were expecting to do a fourth movie, and maybe they will eventually. But maybe I think will. that's an enigmatic because I think you were left with that. She tries to give him his mother's bracelet back and all of that, and then it becomes a plot point. Who saw that coming? But. But um, that last scene that I put up there, they're, oh, look, yes. they're smiling at each other. And you're thinking, oh, maybe it'll swing back. You know, oh, look, they're eyeing each other after their after their head to head bash. But um, so anyway, but it's a movie series. And who knows? Things ooze in and out of, you know, maybe Spock is about to do a little bit of a remember how good <laughs> it used to be. Um, who knows? Uh... <laughs> they don't do that to Kelvin, the Kelvin universe. They don't do that. No, they do. Yeah, you know what the Kelvin universe? How it, how we define the Kelvin universe? Uh, because of the USS Kelvin. Well, I mean, no, that, yeah, but I mean, how just basically in general, it's like it's exactly like the Prime universe until it's not. <laughs> and when it's not, oh boy, look out at those comment sections. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, Star Trek Beyond, I think, is is a great example of that, and then um, kind of rounding it out with. Um, Speaking of Spock, um, Star Trek Discovery, uh, Michael Burnham's relationship with Spock, uh, the conflict th that they had kind of growing up together is a big part of the second season of Star Trek Discovery. And I think it's, it, it highlights another type of conflict, not only sibling conflict, but, uh, step sibling or not step sibling, but a adopted foster. sibling. Yeah. Foster. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, we've never really seen that. Uh, uh maybe. Worf, we see that a little bit. Worf is the adopted son, really mm -hmm. raised by the Rojenkos. We see that. Um, and a shout out to Zahir, who mentioned Alexander and Worf in our, um, right. in our comments on our Facebook group as an example. That's a fantastic example as well. 
Um, and um, just bringing us full circle to in the timeline, although not full circle because we're now much forward in the timeline. But uh, with Star Trek Picard, I love the relationship with Hugh and Picard, how we saw that in Next Generation, um, the conflict there, and then how that panned out in Star Trek Picard. I think we are all very nervous to see what is it going to be like when Picard and Hugh meet. Um, so much has happened in their lives and so much has happened with the Borg. And I was quite surprised by how that relationship played yeah, out. Yeah, you, you kept happened. mentioning Picard and on, on, we were planning this. Um, with our laborious texts, um, yeah, you were really, you were really attracted to the, the Picard and Hugh, uh, dynamic. And I was kind of going, okay, really? Cause I guess I was swore, I was won over by their, the reaction, their meeting didn't throw me that much because mm-hmm. he sent Hugh back. They met each other at the, at the, you know, at, on Lore's world there with the, with Lore's Borg. Say that for three times fast. And, and then went their ways. And anyway, I, you know, it was nice to bring him back as part of the plot, but, and sad for his ending. But, um, your fascination with it, uh, kind of threw me at first till I went back and started thinking again. I didn't really come away with that it would be this wonderful example of what we were getting at today, but I, it was, it was. I'm not. Yeah. I mean, it, it started, what, what, um, what I like about their relationship is you see it over the course of many episodes and you see how things change and you see the um, some of Hugh's conflict and anger in the beginning and and how that um, how that ends with Star Trek Picard and the journey that Hugh has gone on to help these XBs. And I, I love I love the whole idea of the XB storyline. So I think it's it's a great um, it's a great arc of a relationship that might have started in a conflictual way. Even if you just think about Picard and a Borg and um, helping this Borg, and then that Borg struggling with that and going on to to help others. Um, you know, if that didn't happen. We might not have any XBs. Um, and so I just, I love that storyline mm-hmm. and I love how it sort of starts in a, in a bit of a conflictual way. Um, uh, where there could have been some per- personal prejudice involved. And, um, the, the Hugh, um, Larry, remind me, this, f- Hugh's first appearance, is that post Locutus and post best? Oh, yes. World? Yeah. 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 So I, that's a big part of it too, right? Is, um, Picard doesn't have the same prejudice towards the Borg that... Well, remember, Guinan was part of the dynamic here, too. Yes. And Guinan was all about, you know, and he kind of finds it on his own. And, you know, Hugh is an accidental name and uh, anyway, all this. I I just almost spit out another mini K3, but I'm slowing us down. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know if we can handle another (laughs) mini K3, Larry. Our our, our Canonista minds might uh, go into a warp core breach here. Um, Any other examples um, uh, that you want to discuss before we we jump into the counselors? Uh, Well, you you know, we, uh, we have the examples from, well, all the examples from this episode of Discovery. There's other ones along the way too, but uh, I I did just trying to get around to everybody, um, and it's one we kind of looked at from another angle. But I even threw in one from Lower Decks. Oh yeah, Sarah, yeah, because yeah. it's all about negotiating relationships too. 
I mean, Boimler and Mariner is at the heart of it as they get started. But I'm I'm just really struck by this one. And I know it has a little, it smacks of a little bit of, and here we're going to have a first season art completion, but who knows what will happen. You know, we're going to take all these fundamentals of the format. You know, you're going to send, oops, spoilers, guys. We're sending one character away, you know, who's, a, you know, to another ship even. What will that mean? Um but of those two who had been adver- secret adversaries, well, now their secret's out. But now they're going to—they're agreeing to get along and find a way to actually team up. You know, why do I feel like I'm in an '80s uh, sitcom? Um, <laughs> anyway, that's a—that's a, that, that it was a negotiated relationship, even though it's another family thing. But it was a one that they might as well have not been family as close as they were. So that wasn't part of the dynamic. So anyway, I. I was struck. That's the first thing that leaped to mind when I was trying to think of Lower Decks, but um... yeah, yeah. And um, Lower Decks, a lot of the relationships seem to be full of negotiating conflict. And one of the things I really enjoy about Lower Decks is um, the power structure is uh, is inherent conflict here in the show. That they're all lower deckers. They often don't know what's exactly happening um with the upper deckers and the senior staff um so that's that's always a nice little uh uh source of conflict here um the comment section there's been so many wonderful uh examples here and we'll hopefully we'll get to more of them uh when we open up the hailing frequencies but larry i'd love i'd love to dive in to um our next segment of the show we have segments we have segments and we have these beautiful images as well uh, wow. The counselor's log. So this is when I do a little bit of a deeper dive into um, some of the psychology behind what we're talking about. And the very first thing, Larry, I think we need to get off our chest is conflict is not bad. You know, the, um, I think so often conflict can be presented as something we need to avoid in our real lives. In stories, conflict is the engine of a compelling story. Right. Like you, you have to have rising even in the 24th action. 24th century? Even in... <laughs> not among humans. Uh, or not among the Federation. Uh, until no, it does. Con- until it does, yeah. It's like the Kelvin timeline, Larry. Uh, no conflict until until we have some. But the... Uh, you know, you need good conflict in storytelling, but often in our own lives, in our own relationships... Mm-hmm. We might be trying to avoid conflict, whether that's at work and you might might want to avoid differences of opinion or with our friends or with our family, our loved ones, our partners, our kids. Uh, but we, we need conflict. So, for example, there's been many times, Larry, where you and I have had differences of opinion of what the topic for this show should be for this week's Life Support Live. And that's good. That's healthy. By having that conflict, by having a little bit of a debate, we'll probably get to a point where um, we're going to have a, a better idea. Um, and, and so often we've done the same thing in our um, the different panels that you and I have done together. Uh, our first ideas, we might have a lot of disagreement between each other, but you need that conflict to get to the better idea. And conflict in our friendships or in our relationships, you need that to work through whatever issue there is that's there. So, um, 
this was um, research that really surprised me. This all sounds of, like it applies to like business and negotiating concepts, but none of this applies to like more intimate friendships and, and relationships, I, does I, it? I'm I'm glad you asked, Doctor Trek, because that is a um, your second uh, second assist of the episode. And the thing about relationships here, um, some of the research on divorced couples is very interesting. Um, as as a relationship is declining, um, one of the things that can sort of predict the end of a relationship is actually a significant reduction in conflict because the couple stops trying to address the problems in the stops relationship. Trying, stops trying, exactly. So <laughs> conflict in a relationship is not a bad thing. Conflict in a relationship is often how um, a couple are able to work through problems in their environment, in their home, um, in their relationship. And a failure to try to address the problems is not a good sign. Um, you know, it's kind of like our crews always run these, um, these diagnostic checks, right? They run a level one diagnostic and they find problems and then they have to fix them. We have to do the same thing in our relationships, whether it's family, friends, um, coworkers. We have to run these diagnostics, see what problems there are, work on those problems, but there's going to be conflict there. The issue often becomes, it's, it's not the, um, the conflicts we struggle with, Larry, they're, they're usually not the factual conflicts, like the conflicts you and I have, um, with our work, with the show that we put on. Because the conflicts you and I have is, well, I think we should talk about this. Oh, I think we should talk about this. But they're not personal. It's just... Well, see, what, what I call... Well, you call it... That and conflict is disagreement. Yeah. Now, I, I disagreement. would say... Yeah. We sit down. We start off. It's To me, it's more like brainstorming. To me, mm -hmm. conflict... And this is just lay terms, I guess. But to me, conflict is... Brainstorming is throwing out ideas, which is what we do. And then yes. we gradually distill down to a choice and maybe we get to two or three and we're going around about them for a while and sometimes it's not yeah. even like disagreement sometimes it's just like okay now let's take our brainstorming to a new level and it's like let's just spit out things and it's almost like we kind of eventually find <laughs> we either we find something mutual or the other one just gives up and falls asleep or something happens <laughs> yeah but it's not That's like on both not giving sides. up giving yeah. up it's giving up for the night and i'll get back to this fresh in the morning but um, but yeah, when we talk about, when I think about conflict, I think as you were, as we, our graphic here is, I think it's more of the head banging into things and yeah. most of brainstorming, you know, doesn't seem to be that way. It's just the process. Conflict to me is like when you get to loggerheads and you have to resolve, uh, a disagreement somehow. And that's where, that's conflict to me. And that's where negotiation, you don't need to negotiate the things that aren't in dispute. Yeah, I, I think what I was getting at there was disagreement, and disagreement is okay, and disagreement is healthy. Yeah. Um, when well, things disagreement become is revealing, yes. you find out things you didn't even realize, and sometimes you get on the, the same page. It's like discovery in a court trial. It's like, oh, yeah, you um, not Star Trek discovery in a court trial. Although we'll probably see that um, at some point. We're probably a court trial on discovery. We'll oh, probably right, right. see. Yeah. No, discovery in the court trial. Okay. <laughs> so, um, when things become more difficult is when they get personal. And that's when disagreement and debate 
grows into a bigger conflict and the conflict might appear to be about oh i don't know star trek versus star wars or the kelvin timeline or discovery or this or that and things become very heated and things become very emotional and the problem with that type of conflict is it's it's it is highly emotional it's highly personal it's probably about strong feelings that people have about their identity about their beliefs about their fundamental values and Phantom that type versus of con- the toxic tubers yeah it, yeah i mean that's a whole episode unto itself um but yeah th- that that level of conflict it's um it gets very personal and it gets to your identity and you have no hope of solving that conflict in the same way that we solve other disagreements Unless you're addressing the emotions, the belief, and the identity aspects of that conflict. And that's where I think a lot of us really struggle is we get into these very heated debates, but we keep trying to argue our way out of them without really acknowledging, hey, this is what it's really bringing up for me. And here's why I'm struggling with this so much. Um, Mm. this is the whole Thanksgiving dinner phenomenon in the United States is people getting together for Thanksgiving who often don't sit with each other for this period of time and having these really difficult conversations about, about big beliefs that they have about how things should work. Um, those debates and disagreements and conflict, it's about very personal stuff. And if you don't address the personal stuff in there, you can't argue what your way out of it. It's going to be, it's, it's not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also want to mention intractable <laughs> conflicts, Larry. These are conflicts that are, it's different than um, a conflict that comes and goes. Intractable conflicts are these like long-term sustained conflicts that don't seem to have any hope of resolving themselves. And this gets back to that wonderful episode you mentioned, The Wounded. Um, What's really interesting about intractable conflicts, whether it's between two states, two governments, or it's between two people, that you often see this in families. There are often intractable conflicts in families. Mm -hmm. Maybe a parent and a child, or two siblings, that there's certain things that they will have always fought about for years, and there's nothing that's solving it. This is what's so surprising. And all the rest of us. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. (laughs) Um, What's really interesting about the research on intractable conflicts, they don't respond to the normal conflict resolution strategies. You can't mediate your way. You can't send someone, you can't send a parent to come in and break up that and resolve that fight and have them talk about their feelings and sort of uh, resolve itself. Intractable conflicts don't resolve by the normal means of a powerful entity coming in to mediate them. That's not what works at all. It kind of gets at your strategy, Larry, that you were mentioning. Um, you kind of want to, um, a third party who's not as powerful um, who's seen as a bit more neutral, who's seen as not having a vested interest coming in and sort of 
helping to bring down some of the conflict between these two people and maybe bringing up just a little bit more positivity or helping them to see where where they have some mutual goals. It's not a direct process of mediation. It's kind of coming in on the side and um, taking opportunities of um, um, that really kind of shake up the system. Um, t- taking something weird that's happened and destabilize this conflict and a, a, a third party coming in that's not as seen as powerful, seen as neutral, maybe helping them to catalog- uh, capitalize on this conflict. Um, the big picture that's... with intractable conflict is just helping them to fight less and kind of just writing that out until there's some type of crisis and then a third party coming in and maybe helping them to make the most of this crisis. And finally you get to a tractable conflict. Um, and hopefully, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that. We call that, I, I'm surprised you didn't use the technical term for that, which is, of course, shake things up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it um, <clears throat> it's often not going to be um, the very powerful negotiator who might be shaking things up. And sometimes we see that in Star Trek. Sometimes we see uh, Picard is brought in because he is right. a bit more of a neutral third party, hasn't been involved, doesn't really have a um, um, any side here. He is brought in. Um, or Sarek, or, or um, in, in um, you know, later years, maybe uh, Spock as well. Um, well, what Picard has, above all, as a tool, as a secret weapon, a secret sauce, is that wonderful Franco-British accent. <laughs> I thought you were going to say what Picard over. has, above all else, is an understanding of the tapestry of intergalactic politics. You're hanging by a thread. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to close up the counselor's log and let's venture into the K3 oh. factor. The K3 factor is when we do a deep dive into some aspect of the canon that uh, folks might not be well aware of. And look at that. K- the K3, case you didn't know, there was actually one monitor on the bio support panel there for uh, sick bay that says uh, brain, uh, yeah, brain K3. It's like the only, aside from the psycho tricorder, and and McCoy serving drinks in his therapy the way Dr. Boyce did. It's the only reference we can find the mental health kind of overtly. And Ed Leary, kind of the only reference we have to any mental health technology at all in Star Trek. We, like, we haven't really seen anything. I'm hoping the 39th century has <laughs> developed <laughs> mental health a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, you, I guess you could argue Spock's brain, maybe. Uh, <laughs> neural, the neural neutralizer. Come on. What do you mean? The neural neutral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any non-torture related. And that medicine uh, in the little jar that's going to make all of Garth of Azar's problems go away. <laughs> the gold, the gold. What do you have for, uh, for us this week, Larry? Well, what I've got for you this week, aside from the minis and the ones, and the ones I didn't go to, it's a very simple, and yet at the moment, at the time, I think uh, everybody should know this. But then as the years go by and I keep things out of your mouth, remind me that not everybody knows everything. So it's always good to share what I know. So let's go back to the roots. Let's go all the way back to the original series. And let's go back to like the middle of season one and negotiation between, can you put it up, these guys? Oh, Ali, 
boom. There it is on view Coast screen. guys, yeah. Now, most people, Oh, I know them, Larry. My, <laughs> that's, people, uh... What's his um, name? What's his face? Yeah. The yeah. pony guy, yeah. And the guy yeah, with the... Yeah, pony-eared and, uh, um, handsome... The, the, the guy with the, with the hairpiece and the women and the and the tummy trouble after three years, yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, are you talking? About, I feel like you're talking about me now. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Were you the <laughs> of a si- '60s sci-fi show? No, 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 no. Very famously, Star Trek was sold as this space drama with a captain, mm-hmm. and then he has a second banana character who's his like number one, and then a bunch of other people. And what often happens is, you know, when you birth something and put it out into the world, sometimes it gets away from you or it just becomes much more than you had. You know, you had no idea like this show has become so much more than we had any idea. <laughs> right. Um, unfortunately, no, I'm kidding. Totally kidding. <laughs> uh, we got a great family here. Well, what happened in the Star Trek family was no one saw. I mean, remember, they had to fight, you know, in the lore of Star Trek, one of the most basic stories is the fact that. When Gene had the original format, part of it was because Majel, his mistress, he tried to cast as the number one, as the number one. Uh, and when she was wiped out of the first pilot and replaced and things were rejiggered, in fact, Spock was the only character kept over expressly from the first, from the first pilot. And Gene having to say, well, you know, they didn't want a woman to be in command. Well, that was kind of it, but they really didn't want Majel Barrett part of the show because I thought that was uncouth. Um, and then he got her back in his chapel later on. But in that rejiggering of things, Spock was, you know, elevated and all that. And now he's the number two. He's the first officer of the show. Um, nobody thought he's the number two of the show, but he's actually the number one. The number one, right. But he's not number one. That's a British term, by the way, which shows just how screwed up they are. Yeah. The number one, it's kind of like the best man at the wedding is not the guy getting married. It's the same kind of thing. Right, 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 right. But as the show moves along, you know, NBC wanted to get rid of the guy with the ears, too. The the first brochures for somebody in the promo art department airbrushed the... They were worried about the satanic stuff in the South. Yeah, that the Spock would be seen not, as a okay. satanic character, right? So you come all the way from that dynamic to what starts to happen after halfway through the first season. The fa- You know, back in the day, physical paper fan mail is coming up. And who's, who's is swamping? Everybody's getting fan mail. And of course, Shatner's getting fan mail as the lead. But Nimoy, as Spock, yeah. is getting way more fan mail than anybody else. Yeah. And, yeah. and they, they shoot, you know, they've shot six or eight or ten episodes, as usually happens, before the first one even airs. So they're way into, yeah. they're halfway through the year before anybody has an inkling this is going to happen. And obviously, the characters are developing and sinking, and, you know, McCoy and Spock are coming along, and. Everything's going great, and the show is quickly evolving, and we see all those baby steps in the early shows. All that's happening. And then it hits the air, bang, and within a week or two or three or four, people are like, oh, my God. And people, many of them female-type people, are writing in to Spock, to Leonard Nimoy constantly. And his mail gets bigger to the point where he's paying out of his own pocket for it. And then he, I mean, or Desi Lewis paying for generic fan mail, but his mail dwarfs everybody else's so much that he's paying for his own people to answer his fan or go through letters and, you know, forward things. The point of this is by the end of the first, midway through the first season and by the end of the first season, the dynamic that's a standard little 60s show 
you know, this is before Hill Street Blues. This is before the ensemble revolution, right? You watch any old show from the 60s and 70s, and it's lead, you know, sidekick mm -hmm. number two, and then everybody else. Mm -hmm. And that was upset. Which we saw in the billing on, on the intro. Uh, right. Yeah, the bill, yes, yeah. the opening billing totally reflects yeah. that. Everybody, well, lower de the lower deckers in the Enterprise, you know, like everybody, Scotty and Uhura, and all the actors we think of as in the family, they're all in the 60s style. They're all theme, which also meant they got no residuals for those shows, and it reflects their deal. Um, oh, but, my gosh. I didn't know that. Oh, you, you only get residuals if you're in the opening credits. To this day? To this day, which is wow. why, as the guilds have had whatever, producers, directors, writers, and yeah, and acting, that's why the opening credits keep expanding and expanding. That was a deal thing. If you, if you leap from the back credits to the front, like if you're a producer or a writer climbing the ladder, or an actor with a role climbing the ladder. Um, well, that's a whole nother negotiating conflict. Case yes, it is. Folks, I feel like we just, w today's episode should really be called the, the gift of bonus K3s. The, um, the K3. Th so the bottom line here is Spock and his man, Nemo and his manager started going saying, look, it's it's the end of the year. We signed contracts. Yes. But something is happening here. We did not anticipate. I'm so sorry that my client, that my character, has gotten so incredibly popular, it's become much more the dynamic of what's driving the popularity of the show than who could have seen this happening, you know? Yeah. So anyway, yeah. basically it boils down to him wanting more money, more script time, better scripts, you yeah. know, whatever. And it was a negotiation that he had to do with, he and his manager had to do with Desi Lu. But it was also an interpersonal thing that he and Shatner had to figure out because Shatner, you know, the leads of shows, you talk to any of the, the actors, Avery, uh, Kate, any of them, Scott, they feel like the show is on their show. And Star Trek, yes. it's always been the captain, yes, until Michael. But they feel like Sonique was the same way. They feel like the show a lot is riding on their shoulders. Or the commander. In the on, case yes, of the, yes, on the thing. But they feel physically like the lead of any show feels like it's on their shoulders. And now here's a case where somebody else is going, don't worry, I've got this. Apparently the public thinks I'm just as, you know, uh, not a matter of popularity, but, you know, that I'm a, I'm helping support the show and drive it and, and be thoughtful and creative and provocative and attract, you know, a piece yeah. of art that's attracting viewers in a different way. A piece of um, the action. Which is all good for the show. It's good for everybody, except for maybe if they want more money, <laughs> the uh, the accountants that have to find it, the producers have to find it. But it goes back to the original lead of the show. So th this whole thing is uh, talk about a negotiation. There was jealousy. There was, you know, and it, it was also wrapped up in we can't pay you more money. And it was like minuscule 60s. It's, it was like 12. They, Nimoy got I was just reading this again, like twelve hundred and fifty dollars an episode in 1966 and he was negotiating to double it to 2500 but oh my was, gosh but but gosh. shatner was getting 5000 an episode as the lead oh yeah so anyway so there was a there was wow. a structural ego thing going on there and i know we're talking about shatner but still there was ego involved um yes. i'm kidding um but anyway the two of them had to negotiate that and what finally happened their people negotiated after this happened now they didn't equalize in salaries but they equalized into like raises and things at that time and then we get into the movie era but basically 
coming out of that, and then there was a famous moment. I was rereading uh, Inside Star Trek, Bob and Herb's book, uh, Bob Justman and Herb Solo's book, where when Fred Freiberger came in to hands-on produce the third season, a few scripts in, they had a disagreement, and it's like the kids all came to dad. Freiberger bought Shatner and Nimoy in the flesh, not their people, in the flesh, came into the offices to Gene, who was kind of like, you know, backing away, but hadn't quite yet, and said, Gene, we've got this dispute going on. Uh, Shatner says he's the lead of the show, and Nimoy says they're co-equals. And they're like four guys standing in a room. This is not a business meeting in Gene's office. And Gene's, you know, notoriously, I'm talking about avoiding conflict. He notoriously avoided conflict and hemmed and hawed and... The, the two authors talking about they think this is what permanently damaged his relationship with Freiberger even because mm-hmm. he got more and more withdrawn. But making him and he finally, 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 after hemming and hawing and walked out the door and on his way out the door said, it's Shatner. So he was trying to get back to that. Anyway, the two of them, you know, those are ramifications that happened. But the two of them eventually negotiated this famous favored nations clause, mainly what happens with one happens with the other. And if it wasn't always equal pay, although it kind of, I think, got close to that, that's where you get into the dynamic of Nimoy wanting to direct, and after he did a couple of movies, Shatner getting to direct, and right, and, and then and at least the opportunity, opportunities. Now, if somebody can't pull up with something, haha. If you can't make the bar, then maybe it's not like a guaranteed thing. We're not going to sink the ship because you can't um, captain it. But, um, <laughs> but. That was the origin. So part of their negotiation for their relationship was, you know, they found the beginning there. And sadly, apparently it ended not well. It wasn't over jealousy. It was other things. But um, right before Nimoy died. But that was a relationship that was very complicated, started in conflict. They had to navigate it. They had some outside help doing it. They had yeah. some outside help making it worse. But eventually they got to a comfort zone where what most of modern fandom thinks of is, oh, it's Bill and Leonard on stage laughing it up at, at Pasadena or at Vegas, you know, those moments. Um, and when they do projects together, like their videos and things, um, but that had to get to a certain place first. And then even at yeah. the end, and you can talk about declining health and, and uh, mental state, but at the end, it even unfrayed then, too. But there you go. I don't know if you. Uh, that's uh, that's really great, and um, that was a deeper dive. Were you aware of um, of them no. being at loggerheads as the first? No, they were actually threatening Nimoy. This isn't about Shatner, but they were actually drawing up lists and their prime two people to replace it. They keep a Spock and just recast it, not even to wow. have a Zon, but to have Spock recast was either Mark Leonard or Lawrence Montaigne that had played Stan in uh, a Muck Time. That so would play this Stan. is. <clears throat> There's there's a lot here. I think that's really fascinating. And uh, one of the things I just... I didn't leave you... uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew that. No, 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 no. This is... um, You've not yet... I don't think we've had a K3 that hasn't surprised me in some way. So I always appreciate that. I look forward to these as much as everyone else does. And uh, it's one of my favorite things about Life Support Live. Where else are you going to get a deep dive into the... In canon and out of canon stories and get a little bit of a mental health tip yeah. uh, to help you get Back. through the week. It's only Back on there, support okay. live, folks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. And, and on Portal Force. Somewhere in Trekland. Yeah. And on the Psych Show. But besides these places. Um, no, I, I didn't really know that, Larry. And what I think, one of the things that sticks out to me is how important it is to be 
to be treated fairly and with equity and how in um, in the workplace, it's important to be uh, to feel like you're being fairly compensated uh, for the work that you are doing. And if you don't feel that, you're not going to be doing your job that well. Um, one of the things when I'm whenever I'm talking to graduate students who are going into the field of mental health, I always try to talk to them about negotiating salary and negotiating benefits uh, because it's not something many of us learn to do. And right. the reality is there's always some room for negotiation. Even if someone doesn't negotiate on, on salary, maybe they, they can negotiate on benefits or on opportunities that you have um, with the job that you're entering. And um, some people are very well trained to do this. Lawyers are very well trained to do this. I've benefited from having a few lawyers uh, negotiate on my behalf and, and ask for things that I, I never wouldn't even know how to do. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a really difficult skill. And I'm glad, um, Nimoy was able to get a bit more equity there. Um, because folks, we might not, had that not happened, we not, we might have not seen more Spock. Um, he might have left and, and Star Trek would be very well, different. Um, totally different. Know, yeah. So I want to actually, um, that's a, a really great segue, Larry, into the uh, this week's away mission. You're welcome. So this is the part of the show where I give you, our lifers, our community here, our family, um, some tip to help you apply everything we're talking about to your life. And um, the tip I wanted to share is actually about assertiveness. Um, assertiveness is about expressing your rights um, and and finding a way to express your rights in a situation where you might feel like you're not being treated very fairly. It's a very hard skill, Larry. I've, I've struggled with this myself. Um, I, I yeah, no, it's uh, because when um, to express your rights also means um, you have to introduce some conflict and it might be easier to avoid that conflict. And maybe at work we can we can do that, and there's other people who whose job it is to approach approach that conflict. But in our personal lives, no one else is really going to do that for us. So whether you um, whether you order something at a restaurant back when we all used to go to restaurants and you get the wrong item, or someone is saying uh, saying something to you that's really hurtful and they don't realize how much they're hurting you. Or um, you're waiting on something from someone else and um, it still hasn't been delivered. They haven't done the thing that they've promised to do. There are situations where you have to ask someone to change what they're doing because it's causing some type of problem for you. And that's where assertiveness is a real powerful skill that we can all use. The way I like to teach assertiveness to folks uh, comes from something called DBT, which is Dialectical Behavior Therapy. This is a therapy that's all about learning skills that help you to be in what's called wise mind. The way I explain wise mind, Larry, um, it, I, I use Star Trek. So I talk about how um, in DBT, um, people often struggle with being in emotion mind or being in uh, rational mind. And I talk about it in terms of bones and Spock. And we might... We might find ourselves being a little too Vulcan at times 
or a little too uh, McCoy at times, and you know, you green-blooded Vulcan. Um, and what we really want is the integration of the two, which is Wise Mind, and that um, I, I explain that in terms of Shatner, and not in well, terms of Shatner, in terms of Kirk. Um, Kirk was w- often. Yeah. Right, right. The uh, pathos, logos, ethos. The mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I, um, We want the integration of the two. We want to bring together the rational and the emotional side. And DBT is a treatment that really aspires to do that, help people to do that. Anyways, um, sometimes people push back on that and they're like, you're saying Kirk was the rational, uh, Kirk was the wise one. And I, I pushed back. I'm like, go watch Star Trek. Watch more Star Trek. Have you seen the damn show as, as Larry might say um, Kirk is the one who's often listening to both sides and trying to find a way to um, take that middle path in between the more emotional and the more logical path at anyway. least for movies everything changes here's here's a new hashtag everything changes in the movies it's suddenly all about yeah it's the end of the earth we're the only ship in the quadrant blah 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 yeah and uh, yeah the, the enterprise is always the only ship within range it's like build some more starships uh starfleet come on um. right but it's like here's but but what you were just saying though it's like that is the truth but then a lot of people think because the movies have such a big footprint it's kind of like you say Monty python and people think of the movies and i go no the series uh same thing with star trek yeah. um People, just like you just said, people say, what do you mean? Kirk breaks rules all the time. Well, he did, but it was really, that was more the, you know, he plunges into V'ger. He takes back control of the ship when he shouldn't. He, he, uh, you know, he, he runs to Genesis when he's told not to. They break the, they're up for court. I mean, that whole rule breaky thing of Kirk is really, really during the series is when he's, he's being the, the, you know, he does take off at times. Yeah, sure. And is impetuous, but as far as the big picture and the plot resolution, he's he's. Uh, I just want to say that, but it it heightens that whole thing about things. It's like you know, before the movies, or yeah, but not in the movies, or the movies change. Yeah, everything. yeah, which is which is the same for the next generation. And have, too. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Picard and Data are suddenly the core relationship it's, of the next generation. In, it's in amazing the to me how they switch yeah. places. How this original series starts off as a '60s show and gets very ensemble in the movies. Yeah. Next Gen starts off as the ensemble and gets very 60s in the movies. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, before I explain this, uh, the skill of assertiveness, uh, just a couple of comments. Uh, Victoria says, I use Cisco for Wise Mind. Love it. Uh, Victoria, that's, uh, that's fantastic. I think Cisco is a great example of that too. And then Libby says, uh, there's no room for compensation in the jobs I've had. Take it or leave it. Most government jobs are that way. And you're absolutely right, Libby. Um, this skill and negotiation can still be a big asset when you're trying to negotiate work that you're given, um, delegating that work to other people, especially when you might have a lot on your plate, or maybe negotiating um, opportunities in your role that might help you to get advancement. I think a lot of us, especially those of us who might struggle with anxiety, like I have in so many different parts of my life, we might shy away from those conversations. And as a result, we might be um, we might be taking on more than what we really need to, or we might be taken advantage of in certain situations. Or the place where I use this skill the most, Larry, again, something that we used to do in the before times was a movie theater. 
I really have a very hard time watching a movie when someone else is talking during the movie. And um, what a concept! I know. <laughs> I I have used this skill so many times because I just. I cannot be present and watching a movie when someone else is talking as well. So the skill um, from DBT, it's called Deer Man. Um, Deer Man is the assertiveness skill. And what it stands for is describe the situation, express your emotion, assert what you need, reinforce how this is going to help both parties. And then the man part is about staying mindful, um, M A A um A is God I'm I'm blanking on the A um I'm gonna have to um look up my notes oh appear confident and negotiate right but here here's what you have to remember say adorable like the song uh, adorable okay yeah. um, adorable be your okay <laughs> why I like this term is it, it really has the steps you need to be assertive right there in the acronym. All you really need to remember is the dear part. Describe, assert, express, and reinforce. So uh, let's say the movie theater example is you describe the situation. Uh, hey, excuse me, I don't know um, if you realize this, but I can hear your conversation. I can hear you talking. That's to describe. A uh, or E is express. Um, it's really hard for me to focus on the movie when I hear your conversation. That's the E part, the express. A is assert, is would you mind stopping your conversation or continuing it outside? That's what you're asking for. But here's the kicker, Larry. This is the most important part, which is R, reinforce. This is where you say how this is actually beneficial for the other person. Not just for you, but how this is going to help the other person. And what I always tell people is um, I don't want anyone here getting really upset at you for hearing this conversation either. And um, I, I think it would just, I want to make sure that no one gets upset at you for this. So that's a dear man skill. Describe the situation, express how it's impacting you, assert what you need and talk about how this is going to be good for everyone involved. Um, that's dear man. And uh, it's helped me a lot of times, at least having a framework. And then staying mindful, staying present in that situation, appearing confident, and then be open to negotiating a little bit. That's the second part. That's the man part. That's cool. the man part. Well, where were you when I was a teenager and in college? <laughs> no, I, I have <clears throat> the whole thing of being assertive and the ways to get what you want without, you know, it's without it being black and white. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and basically, you know, being terminally nice guy, that was a thing that I had to, that I probably am not great at still, yeah. but um, that whole, that conflict avoidance, you know, or conflict means you failed because you didn't smooth it before you got to the conflict. You didn't find a way out of this before it got to a conflict point. And sometimes you have no choice. Sometimes things are beyond your control and you have to deal with them that way. They come out of the blue or maybe it's, you know, you had your blinders on and it's like do all you can to protect yourself and, and, and be aware, protect the situation or protect your own well-being. And I, I and but that also means being alert to everything else. And sometimes despite your best efforts and we're, we've talked about like sitting down to come mutually sitting down to come to a new situation, like planning a show or working with colleagues in a day to day situation or in your relationship or whatever. But sometimes things come up new 
you got a new boss all of a sudden who hates you or something, and you didn't get a chance to plan for it, so now you're dealing with the here and now. Anyway, um, that's been a skill that's been really late developing with me and probably could still stand a little more. <laughs> but th- those moments when something comes out of the blue and you go like, oh, and then you have to like retreat to think about how to deal with it, and sometimes there, when there's 15 other things to deal with also – and it's not life and death, and it just goes back on a back burner until you figure out what to do with it. But meanwhile, you, you suddenly realize that eight years have gone by, and you didn't, or, you know, some amount of time has gone by, and you didn't get it off the back burner to deal with it, because not so much you were afraid of it, because you knew that it was going to take time and energy and maybe learn a new muscle, you know, emotional or even physical. Mu- anyway, th- those kinds of things that putting off that, negotiation that you know you're going to have to have but it's on those <sighs> okay I'm going to have to do this and that's that's been my my thing sometimes I think yeah. I'm pretty good in the moment but it's more of the, like the bigger it is than the more the weight you feel and yeah yeah I, I definitely uh, have felt that too Larry and I suffer from a lot of the nice guy syndrome as well and, and sometimes trying to be nice mm-hmm. in my mind has meant also avoiding conflict, which has also meant um, there's many times where I haven't had my rights really expressed because I just, I don't, yeah, sure, I'll take on that other group work, even I shouldn't have to, uh, even though it's not my job. You know, and, and there's a lot of comments. was like a word no one taught me until I was, you know, yeah, 25 no, or 30. <laughs> no, same here. Larry, I only learned this in grad school. And, um, I, there's a lot of, a lot of feedback in the comment section. Some folks are saying, you know, I'm taking notes for work. Some people are saying that there's no way if I did this at work, I would get fired, you know? Um, so you, you do have to pick and choose your battles. Um, and I would not do this in the movie theater if I feel like I am in an unsafe situation. And, um, before, um, before the coronavirus, uh, my favorite movie theater to go to was, uh, the Alamo Draft House because they had a no talking policy. Um, and sometimes it means, um, asserting yourself to some type of authority figure who has the, the authority to be able to handle the situation. So you gotta pick and choose your battles. But I think the one thing, um, people can take from this is when you are talking to other people, really think about, how making a change would be in their best interest. Um, that's, that's the R part of Dear Man is really reinforce how this is going to be good for someone else. Come up with a win-win. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I don't believe in no-win scenarios, Larry. So uh, come up with a, with a win-win there. And, um, the other, th- you know, I, I'm, you have to have an apple. <laughs> okay. Right, right, right. Um, in either timeline. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It works for both Kelvin and Prime. Um, but the other piece to this that uh, that I mentioned in the counselor's log is some of those more difficult conflicts are personal issues. And um, I don't have an away mission tip for this because I have a video about this that I mentioned in the past. If you look at my video, Listen Like a Therapist, that gives you some of the skills 
as to how to deal with that type of conflict that you might have with someone else and it's become personal. Try out some of those skills that I mentioned in the Listen Like a Therapist video and and that'll be helpful for you. Um, folks, let's open up the hailing yeah. frequencies. We're running a little um, late. We've got plenty of time. I, there's a couple yes. I want to, for one thing, I want to say hi to Bruce Gibson. I don't know if it's his first time, but it's a friend of mine that may be with us for the first time. Hey, Bruce. Notice I didn't say Scott. Um, but Rose Kirby, way back. Hey, Rose. Um, she had a good question. She said, so how do you negotiate inner conflict with yourself? Ooh. Get a it's bar, a get a friend, get a therapist. No, I'm... <laughs> well, Larry, I, I think you're you're onto something there. So um, I, I would say that's a great question, Rose. And I would say it, it comes down to getting perspective. Um, sometimes we can get that perspective by writing a letter to ourselves. Sometimes we can get that perspective by journaling. Sometimes we can get that perspective by doing something called the empty chair <laughs> technique, which is talking uh, to ourselves, imagining that we're sitting in that chair and, and talking to ourselves about this conflict that we're having. Um, and sometimes it means talking it out with a friend, and sometimes it means talking it out with um, with a professional. But we really need to get out of our head a little bit and have that conversation. Um, if you have no one available to you, journaling about it. Um, I've mentioned this on the show before, but journaling for about 20 minutes a day for about four days in a row um, is often what is helpful to get unstuck with this conflict you're having with yourself. Uh, when I was in grad school, I was struggling very much so with procrastination. And um, my therapist recommended that I write a letter to myself. And I did that. And in the letter, um, I expressed a lot of anger that I have towards myself and also a lot of fear of failure that I have. And a fear of what's going to happen if I really try to do this work that I have to do. And I needed to get that perspective. I needed to get out of my thoughts and um, have that conversation with myself in order to do that. So that would be the tip. Larry, you're, you know, Dr. Track nailed it. You had, you had the I, right I'm answer. just reading Rose's question. I thought it was a good question. Yeah. Um, then Cairo, by, by the way, guys, I'm like, uh, what am I? I'm 20 minutes behind on the chat, so... Um, Cairo had and I'm good... working from the bottom up. You're working from the top okay. down. I'm working from the bottom up. Well, isn't that just a damn metaphor for life? Okay. Um, <laughs> Cairo said the deepest, we were talking about conflicts, right? And he said the deepest conflict of them all is this really Star Trek or isn't it anymore? Which is very divisive among chunks of fandom. I still think there's tons of armchair fans who have no idea that we're all out here talking about all this, and they're like, <laughs> yeah, 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 they're really the vast majority of fandom. You know, they buy an action figure, they buy a novel, they sit down with their kids or not and watch Star Trek, and they all this, the toxic tubers, the podcasting, the fan films, the fanzine world back in the day, yeah. all of that is like this world they have no clue about. They're just sitting at home watching Star Trek. So anyway, I'd yeah, love to yeah, there's, put a there's metric a... to that. Yeah. There's a big group of people who watch TOS, watch some of TNG era, or they watch some of this new era, and that's it. You know, they watch one piece of it, they'll they'll talk about these stories if you ask them, but that's it. You know, and I would say that's the majority of, of fandom. Like, folks need to remember that Star Trek, the 2009 film, made a ton of money. A lot of people watched it. A lot of people watched First Contact. A lot of people watched Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. Uh, and not all of them 
are listening to these podcasts Crossed watching over the scenes. bridge yeah. right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> listening to it, yeah uh, but I think you're right. Uh, yeah, that um, what I want to say about that too, Larry, is mm-hmm. that's an example of the kind of conflict that becomes personal instead about identity. On the surface, the yes. debate might be: Is this Star Trek? You know, is dis is Disco or Picard or Lower Decks or the Kelvin timeline? But what it's really about is: Hey, Star Trek had this impact on me. Um, Star Trek is really important to me for this personal reason, and. I am struggling very much so with this other view that I'm seeing. It's challenging these ideas that I have about this thing that means so much to me. It's it's about that. That's the discussion we should be having. Not, oh, this version of Star Trek is so dumb for these reasons. No. Like, I want to ask you, if you have that, like, what does Star Trek mean to you? How does Star Trek impact your life? And how are those things challenged by this new thing you're watching? Let's have that conversation. Not this Star Trek is so dumb. I have no interest in having those conversations. It's a big galaxy, folks. Itic, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. It's a big galaxy, Mr. Scott. Yeah. I mean, I shared the story at the Star Trek Las Vegas before they aired, but they had CBS brought in the whole cast of Discovery prior to the premiere. So it was the, it was August of 2017 before the premiere in September. There was a Klingon panel with Ken Mitchell and Mary Chifo. And I think I've mentioned this on the show. There, you know, we think about the really toxic crap going back and forth about people arguing and being divisive and the troll communities picked it up as something to monetize, you know, make money off of it. But there are a lot the of troll things. community, not meaning actual trolls. Um, no, 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 because there aren't that many bridges in the world. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Deck one or otherwise. But uh, <laughs> but there was a very sincere Klingon fan. We've had Klingon fandom for, oh, I don't know, since Libby was a kid. I'm kidding, Libby. Um, we've had, you know, organized from Next Generation time onward, Klingon fandom is kind of like the biggest sub-fandom in Trek, it used to be anyway. And this guy, who was very much a you know community member, was in line, but he was very sincere and passionate and just asked the two of them as they gave this panel, he said, I so much am thrilled to have new Star Trek, but just please, from all I've seen and written, you know, and the whole controversy over the Klingons and all that, he just said, he very, he said what you said. He said, this is something that's been, I've enjoyed for 20 and 30 years. Just, he, no, what he said was, I'm ready to love this show. Please tell me that the thing I have loved for 20 years is not going away. And that's the way he put it. And that gets to the heart of what you said. Uh- I I think that's that's um, a beautiful way to express some of those fears. Um, I have loved this show. It has meant so much to me. I wanted to con- continue on. And that's one of the challenges, Larry, of a show needing to continue on has to be reinvented. Um, Doctor Who is a wonderful example of that. Jared is often our, our Whovian who's bringing up Doctor Who examples and crossing the streams there. But um, Doctor Who has this built into the DNA that the Doctor is regenerated every few years. And re- the show is rebooted. Since and, the first uh, turnover. Since, since the first, now. yeah. Yeah. I'm not and a Who fan? I can say Hardnell and Trouton. And yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, Star Trek <laughs> is the same, has really gone in the same direction. I think it's what's been confusing are some of the prequels and going back and then like things change. Um, but that was also, let's remember folks that 
Star Trek Enterprise, um, the first real prequel that we had, and before we had the reboot of the Kelvin timeline and then Discovery and all of that sort of stuff, this was coming after uh, the Star Wars prequels. And there was there were a lot of... The prequels were seen as a way of um, exploring new stories with existing canon. And the idea of exploring the... The galactic conflict that led to the founding of the Federation was a, a story I was all on board with. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's a story it's, I yelled for. For I said, let's have the founding of the Federation. I yeah. even it even heightened to me when I heard all the current writers when I were working on the Next Generation Companion, and I didn't know this sitting. I didn't even know this reading. You know, keeping up with fan for with whatever I could do, deep, you know, pre-internet and pre-email and pre-social. The the most I could keep up with was reading some of the really in the know magazines and letter columns and things. But I didn't realize this whole this whole line about Gene wants his perfect humans. It's hard, so it, you know, that's a that burns up a lot of writers. It, Star Trek uh, chews them and spits them out, right? Yeah. And that's why DS Nine yeah. was formulated the way it was. That's why Voyager was formulated the way it was. And and um, um, and I've just lost. My, what were you just saying? I've lost my train. You were just saying. Oh, I was talking about Enterprise and the the founding of oh, yeah, the yeah, Federation. Yeah. I kept saying, guys, then do founding of the Federation. Show our heroes making mistakes. They don't have the prime directive. They don't have technology that saves their ass automatically. They've got yeah. older everything, older values, older rules, older tech. But they can still be heroes and we can watch them make mistakes and it can lead into what we know of Kirk and Picard. Mm-hmm. It was and, the most natural thing in the world to me. And then I see fans go, and I've, this is my old soapbox, about, oh, it's going backwards. Star Trek's about going forwards. And I always go, shut up, shut up. This is in the future. This is still... <laughs> it's still our future. But that right. it got to, back to my assumption, which is Star Trek is this huge canvas with so many holes unexplored. That yeah. includes dimensions and timelines as well as the prime timeline. But I, it's like, I have been screaming... For stories set in all these different eras, and those people, and now we're getting it. People would wipe out like two thirds of the story potential of future Star Trek, and I just couldn't. I didn't get that mentality. Yeah, I, I, um, there's a, a lot there. I want to follow. I'm up an oddball um, fan in a lot of ways. So yeah. Well, one thing you mentioned is it reminds me of something I wanted to say earlier. I talked it, about intractable it, it, conflicts, and I talked about how often. You need um, a neutral party that isn't really seen as more powerful to negotiate uh, some of these intractable co- conflicts. We saw that with the humans and Dorians and Vulcans. So the humans were not a powerful presence in uh, in the quadrant. Um, uh, quite the opposite. And the Vulcans and Andorians were in this long intractable conflict in the same way that the Romulans and Klingons are. And it took the humans this not powerful force in the quadrant the to help bring down the hostilities and help them to identify some areas where they can cooperate together. And, and, and a lot of times in an intractable conflicts, you need someone like the humans who are not um, this powerful force, but this other thing that's coming in on the side. The other thing, Larry, that you mentioned, this, this gets to what Glenn is saying right over here. Glenn, I love your comment. I love the idea about talking about why version of uh, X version of Star Trek is in conflict with what my Star Trek means to me. I think that would lead to some wonderful conversations. Glenn, those are the conversations I so miss having 
because those are the conversations I have at at conventions all the time. Those are the con- I say, those are the kind of conversations that we used to have, and sometimes they would get a little heated. Yeah, but it really got to the point of like malaise. You had whenever something is new before it's assimilated into the tapestry of fandom, like you know, early <laughs> next gen, the early movies, early next gen, and then the split with Voyager and DS Nine and. DS9's new way of telling stories when it finally found a way to do that and just everything there's always been point it's just that now we have social media to amp these things up yes. and we've got sadly ways that people are monetized to amp things up or they yeah. they, they either find a way. so now you've got profit motive behind divisiveness profit right but i miss the days we would say oh well i like voyager better than ds9 well i like ds9 better than voyager yeah. Hey, you can. Yeah. It's a dessert topping and a floor wax. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Lies. There's there's a lot of good research. But that, now everything, um, it's like we just totally skipped that level and uh, online. Now in real, I say this: no one's ever toxic in real. How many times have you the the worst of online fandom have you ever seen when you've been at a live event? It's like it doesn't. Yeah. Make yeah. Well, you know, when one you of the put things people we're, back the, together with human connections, we're back to being fans again and just talking. It's online yeah, couple, where that whole layer a comes. A couple from. of um, texture I want to add to to what you just said, Larry, is uh, the face to face eye contact is how we've evolved to interact. And when we don't have that on the internet, it's a bit easier to be more inhuman to each other or inhumane to each other. The other thing I want to say is. Um, it, there's documented evidence that uh, the more emotional media a tweet of YouTube video is and the more it attacks an identity, um, the more it um, especially anger, the more likely it is to go viral. And that's what we see with a lot of these videos, but it, it doesn't really reflect the majority of fans and it doesn't reflect what we see at conventions. Um, so, um, there's a, a great comment here by Cairo again. Uh, we need to remember it's a TV show. Now I had a documentary about the actual future per se. It's not real. What makes it real to us is that we imagine on top of it. Yes, I said we imagine it. Uh, and only then is it real. We imagined it and it's real. It is real. I created it. Um, we're creating this ourselves. And Larry, we're, you know, we used to think about terms and uh, we, we used to think about the known universe. And now we think about the multiverse. And we think about the universes that might be beyond mm-hmm. our um, ability to see. And we're now seeing the Star Trek universe that has that is very different than the 90s. And uh, the cinematic universe of Star Trek in the 90s was very much linear moving forward. What we have now is um, with Strange New Worlds, with Lower Decks, with the Section 31 show, with Star Trek Discovery, with We've Star Trek Picard. We've gone all properties. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes. And we got all multiversey. Um, we're going in all sorts of different directions, and I think that's great because I think there's something for everyone in this uh, in this it's new universe. It's just a big. We used to talk about Gene Sandbox. Well, it's a huge sandbox. It's fact. It's like layers of sandboxes. You, if you don't want to go to the corner over there, go up, go up two more sandboxes. And go play in that corner. But it's yeah, yeah. it's so much. It's so much further along. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, here's something I'll throw out real quick. Uh, one yeah. from Jesse Taggart, who's been newer to our community lately, said, uh, I just finished reading, he says, I just finished reading Star Trek Psychology, The Mental Frontier by Travis. Yeah, yeah, Lee. by Travis. 
See, I have no clue, but you... Oh, Travis, yeah. Yeah, Travis is a, um, a good colleague of mine and uh, for the past few years has been um, really spearheading this series of books into different a- um, aspects of, uh, of different fandoms from everything from The Walking Dead to Star Trek to Star Wars um, to some of the Marvel films. Um, so if anyone's interested in doing deeper dives into the psychology of, uh, different pop cultures, I re- uh, recommend checking out his series. It's, uh, um, there's a lot. There's a lot that they've covered. Does he do con? Does he do panels? Does he panel? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Larry, uh, Larry, you, you've probably crossed paths with him somewhere. So, um, historically, uh, Travis, um, but all, a lot of uh, San Diego and a lot of oh, the Wizard okay. Cons and New York Comic Con. Uh, I'm sure you've probably walked by each other and didn't even realize it. Historically, uh, Travis, Dr. Travis Langley has done a lot with Batman and with comic books and um, oh, more recently with... But uh, more recently with these other aspects, but he's a big time Star Trek fan, a Whovian, all sorts of stuff. And, and the different people in this project of pop culture psychology are a lot of other colleagues of mine who are um, pop culture media psychologist folks. So yeah, if people are interested in doing deeper dives, uh, check out his book series. Okay. Well, they, oh yeah, Travis. I, <laughs> um, uh, Glenn had a follow-up here. Here's something I found interesting when watching you Star Trek. Even if I don't care for something the first time around, I start my rewatch from, say, the second or third season, then go back to the beginning. The early episodes actually get better in context of knowing the great things that are to come. Um, I think that's great advice, Glenn. And that's advice I give to people when I want to help them watch Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine. A lot of people have, have kind of uh, uh, haven't really given that the time it deserves. The first two seasons were rocky, and then the show really takes off. Um, but you know what? Same is true of The Next Generation. Same is true oh. of Voyager. Same is true of all Star Trek, with the exception of the original series, and, and as we would probably argue, Lower Decks as well. Yeah. And I, you know, I this whole dynamic of having two things. The combination of heavily serialized storytelling, where they're not, they're not books, they're chapters in a book, right? And people getting into that. Um, and also this, uh, the short season, the whole dynamic of having them be short seasons. I love how people talk about, well, three seasons of Discovery and blah. I go, you know, this would be like halfway through the second season of the old shows. You know, like the more these, by the time we get to the sixth season, it's like, well, that would really be like three seasons. <laughs> Measure it in your years. I mean, it would be like, yeah, anyway, there's a whole new dynamic than, and longtime fans, veteran fans, as, aside from just knowing all those older series, it's the whole paradigm of how you experience the show, how it's prepared and written and cooked up, you know, and it's, and then you, then on top of that, you added in animation and heightened comedy for animation and how do you still keep a core and people yeah, struggled absolutely. with that in Lord X or you could tell the show kind of clicked in, even though it was made of a piece, they still wrote from beginning to end. And even if they had the ability to go back and tweak things because it hadn't premiered yet, Things still naturally evolve in a certain way, but you know it's just all these different flavors and people getting it. But you could see people click in. I still think most of fandom went, "Oh, oh," about lower decks. I mean, yes. we have no numbers to prove that. Anyway, it's um, um, 
That's so, Larry, my um, I, I I'm sensing my daughter's paw is getting very strong uh, today. So um, we should. Probably... I thought you were your daughter's paw. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Life Support Live podcast. We'd love to get your feedback on this episode. I'm at Alimatu on social media. And I'm at Larry Nimichek. Hey, if you like this show, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. It'll help more people to discover life support. And you can join the community at our Life Support Live Facebook group. If you'd like to learn more about psychology and mental health, check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash The Psych Show. And for a deeper dive into all things Trekland, like Portal 47, check out Larry Nimichek's Trekland on Facebook and YouTube. Until next time, live long and prosper. Trek well, everyone. <laughs>